streets you roam, miles of light explode, drifting off a thing I'd never done before. This is RUF Ole Miss, September 19th, 2007. Revelation chapter 4. We'll read the entire chapter. Let's give our attention tonight to the reading of God's Word. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit. And behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the twenty-four elders fall down before Him who is seated on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are You, O our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For You created all things, and by Your will they existed and were created." This is God's Word. I wonder how many of you remember that scene, the final scene in the first of the Men in Black movies. Remember that final scene? Uh, the camera starts to pull back, way back, right? Into space, you know, actually even beyond our own solar system, beyond our universe, where suddenly we find that our universe is encased inside a tiny marble that's being played with by some space alien, right? This is classic science fiction, and it drives all those ideas. And the idea is simply this. What if there is a parallel universe? What if there is another world just outside of ours, but brighter, more glorious, perhaps even more substantial and more fundamental than ours? You see, in chapter 3, verse 20, Jesus described to John about the fact that he was standing at a door and knocking. And through that, what we find out in chapter, uh, chapter 4 is that we get to actually go through that door. In chapter 4, uh, four verse 1, he looks and says, there's a door, and behold, I saw a door standing open. 
suddenly we get the chance to see exactly what that is. A door and a throne waiting for them on the other side. But remember, John is not seeing, though, like the movie Men in Black, an imaginary world. Like we talked about a couple of weeks ago, John is seeing Main Street in reality itself. John is seeing the real world. The world that for some reason is just beyond our ability to grasp and to see and to perceive. I believe that what John is talking about is a reality that exists that's spoken of in other places in the New Testament. For instance, in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul describes Christians as those who are seated in the heavenly places. Notice he doesn't say that one day in heaven we will be seated in the heavenly places. He says, if you are a Christian tonight, you are seated in the heavenly places. What does he mean by that? I think what he means is that those who follow Christ have been seated and have their being and move and react in a sphere of spiritual reality, invisible largely to those people around them. But to the eyes of those who see the world the way in which God sees it, namely through His Word, see something entirely different. I want to suggest to you this is what the whole book of Revelation is. The entire book, and we really get starting tonight to the real meat and potatoes of this book. The real central visions that drive the imagery of this book. What is it? I think the book of Revelation is an impressionistic pictorial glimpse into the way things really are. That's my little phrase. And I want to break that little phrase down tonight as we figure out what is going on in Revelation chapter 4. First of all, I'm saying that it's a pictorial, impressionistic glimpse into reality. We have to look first of all, and you can see this in your outlines that you have with you, how John sees. John sees something wonderful, but there's a distinctiveness in the way in which he sees. John sees sights that come to us, I'm trying to suggest to you, in highly symbolic form. Extreme symbolic form. But the question I want to deal with, and I warned you a couple weeks ago, we we're going to have to return to this over and over again. Why would John talk this way? Why wouldn't he just tell us what he saw rather than speaking to us in these fantastic, oftentimes bizarre images? Why would he do that? D.A. Carson, for whom I'm greatly indebted for a lot of the material from tonight's discussion, has what I think is a wonderful illustration to sort of bring this point out. I want you to imagine if you were able to visit a country or a community of people that actually still exist in our world, a community of people that actually are so primitive that they are still only equipped with what we would refer to as almost Stone Age technology, having none of the modern conveniences that you and I take for granted every single day. Let's say you go to those people to visit them and see sort of what their existence is like. But then you grab one of those people at random and you take them back to Oxford, Mississippi. And you show them around for a couple of weeks. And you let them see the wonders of modern technology. Imagine for a moment what it would be like for that tribal native to go back to his uh, community, to his people group, and describe something that you and I know as electricity. Can you imagine how that conversation is going to go? He would look at them and say, well, okay, look, um, electricity. Whew. Electricity is like this, this fast spirit 
okay, that runs through these things that, um, uh, that, that look like vines. And uh, these particular people loop their vines from, from tree to tree. And on one end, they pump that spirit through the vines. And then it goes down into other people's, ha- well, into their mud huts, if you will. And that's just trying to explain what the concept of electricity is. We don't even get to the part where we're trying to describe the things that drive electricity. You see? You see, there would be nothing in the experience. Listen, listen, listen. This is a big one. There would be nothing in the experience of that, you know, Stone Age technological society to give them an analogy for what even something as simple as electricity would be. So here's my question. How are you going to describe the very throne room of God Himself? How are we going to pull that off? You see, the point is, is we have no experience that can compare to that experience. Because the distance between our technological world and the technological world of a primitive native is, is great, but how much greater is it between our realm of existence and the realm of existence of the very throne room of the God of the universe? Listen to D.A. Carson. John sees God's indescribable glory in light arrayed. How do you describe a God who is warmer than the hottest fire? Who is purer than the driven snow? Who's more entrancing than a million twinkling stars? Whose love is more sustaining and nourishing than that of the best mother? Who is more magnificent than the most stunning sunset? Who is more awesome than all the unleashed forces of nature? You look at this God, and though He is described in natural terms, it turns out that He is the God who is above nature itself. Psalm 104 tells us that God crowns Himself in light as with a garment. In 1 Timothy 6, we find that He dwells in unapproachable light. How are you going to describe a God like that? This is the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. And so John does the best that he can in that circumstance. You know what he speaks in? Metaphors. Symbols. Great in many ways, bizarre, fantastic images to try to convey to you that this is the best that I can do. It's very interesting how this works. I, there's a little passage that lots of people skip past in the book of 2 Corinthians. When was the last time you read 2 Corinthians? Where Paul talks about himself being lifted up into the heavens. You ever read this? It's in 2 Corinthians 12. You ought to read it. And he comes back down and he says in his letter, he says, and I saw things there that were not lawful for me to utter. And Carson thinks, and I think too, that it may not have been that Paul was not allowed to utter the things that he saw. It may be that he just couldn't do it. And so he comes and speaks in these wonderful metaphors. Look, y'all, it's the same thing that my children do. For some weird reason, my house is situated in such a way that we see the best sunsets at my house. My front door uh, faces the west, and we get these great sunsets in my little suburban context that I live in on the west side of town. And there are times in which when it's been sort of a cloudy day, when the sun sets, it will, it will light the sky up. And there have been times when my children will come in and will say, Daddy, come outside. It looks like the sky is on fire. 
And it's almost as if modern translators of the book of Revelation would take a statement like that from my child and say, well, apparently sometime in the future there will be oxygen throughout the entire atmosphere which will eventually explode into flames upon the coming of Jesus. That's not what my child means. What, is it? Well, what are they doing? They're grasping for images. They're grasping for metaphors to say, it was amazing. You cannot walk away and draw a picture of the throne room of God from this description. Did you notice that? How are you going to draw the four living creatures with eyes both all around and within? That's not the point of the image. The image is supposed to say something. It's not what he literally saw. That's not what they're there for. We'll return to this again. Bear with me. That is how John sees his impressionistic pictorial glimpse. But secondly, so now we're ready hopefully to look at what John sees, right? And the first thing to notice is the throne. The throne is the first thing that he sees. Now John is very careful not to describe the one who sits on the throne. No good Jewish person would actually begin to try to describe God because they had been told never to do that in the second of the Ten Commandments. You're not supposed to make images of God or describing in any way. But he does say that looking at Him is like looking at precious jewels. Jasper, carnelian. In other words, what John says is, when I looked in the face of the one in the center of the throne, I saw the same thing that people see when they look at precious jewels. The last precious jewel that I looked at with any real carefulness, you can actually come see tonight, and it's on the uh, third finger of my wife's uh, left hand. And I remember being in the jeweler, um, uh, talking with the jeweler about the, um, uh, the stone, and him sort of take a look. And I remember the lady, it was a lady actually, and she had the little tweezers, you know, that you use, that you kind of... Well, they give you these tweezers. Y'all know what I'm talking about. Okay, they give you these little tweezers that you pick up the stone with. And they give you the little eyeglass, you know, that you look at. And you look down through it and they said, look, what you need to look for is when it just sort of captures your eye. And sure enough, when that brilliance... We talked about this a couple weeks ago. When that brilliance lights up, it really does... It just makes you want to stare at it. You see what John is saying? John is saying, when I looked into the very face of God, I saw something that I could just sit and stare at for ages upon ages. It was just that beautiful. Next, John sees a rainbow. And the rainbow is dominated by the color green. Don't let that throw you off. That's an image that comes directly out of the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 1. Where Ezekiel looks up and he sees the throne room of God and he sees a rainbow. What does a rainbow mean in the Bible? It means that God is faithful to His covenant. God gave Noah a rainbow in the sky to tell him that his promises would always be kept. That's exactly what John sees. John sees a God who keeps his promises and who abides by his covenant. Then he looks and he sees 24 elders. Now be very careful here. The 24 elders, I believe, stand for the gathered people of God. I take this, as many people do, to be symbolic. Symbolic of the people of God. We believe, in, the, in, the, uh, in the Bible, there were 12 tribes of Israel. And Jesus happened to have chosen 12 apostles. I believe that when you put 12 and 12 together, you get the 24 number that stands for all of the Old Testament people of God along with the New Testament people of God. In other words, what John is seeing and describing for us in symbolic terms are all of the peoples of God gathered around the throne in submission to Him, which explains the white garments and the crowns. 
The throne, John says, sounds like a midsummer thunderstorm. It booms. You ever had those kind of things that shake you when they, when they crash? An image taken straight out of Mount Sinai, as we talked about before. Finally, John looks up and sees four living creatures. Now, there's a lot of discussion as to what in the world these four living creatures are. I take it very simply to be all of God's created order. Images of God's creation flying around and praising Him in every single thing that they do. And I might be wrong about that. To be honest with you, the four living creatures are a bit difficult. But the emphasis in the passage is not so much on what they are, y'all, but on what they do. It's what they do. They sit around and they worship God. They spend all their time in allegiance to God. In other words, they come around and they say, this is the activity of heaven. And we talked about how that looks in the midst of our lives today. But the interesting thing is at a more basic level, I believe what John is trying to say is these layers that are around the throne, beginning with the throne and the four living creatures and the 24 elders and the vast reaches of creation are themselves trying to say that what is at the center of that throne is of cosmic importance. Let me see if I can illustrate this. For those of you who wish to come and see me, it's really not all that difficult. I have an office here on campus that's just a couple buildings over in this direction called Hill Hall, one of the more invisible buildings on campus. No one can find Hill Hall. But anyway, it's right over there. And you can sort of walk in to the front door, go up to the second floor in office number 207, knock on the door, and, you know, sometimes you'll find me there. That's about as complicated it is to come and see me. Why? Because I'm a nobody. Imagine, however, that you make a decision to go and see the President of the United States. The President is of a little bit greater importance than the RUF campus minister at Ole Miss. In other words, to get to him, you've got to go through secretaries, you've got to go through senators, you've got to go through congressmen, you've got to go through all these secret service people until you can actually get him to see that person. The more the flunkies, the greater the person on the other side. You see what John is saying now. Y'all, I think what John is saying is when all of a sudden heaven opened and I looked through that door, that door of reality through which I stepped, I saw something that is absolutely earth-shattering in its importance. That there was something there in the very face of God which was decidedly removed from me. Look, y'all. You have been raised among a religious generation that has stressed God's nearness to the exclusion of His otherness. You know what I mean by that? Your generation has spent a lot of time thinking through and emphasizing what is very true about Christianity, that God is near to us. But my friends, what your generation has largely failed at is having some expression among you of the transcendent, all-powerful, spine-tingling greatness and grandeur and majesty of God Almighty. That there is no one who came into His presence without trembling. That there is no casual relationship with a God of this magnitude. And in many ways, one of the reasons why I believe we have such a failed church 
The reasons why we have such a worldly church in our day is because we have talked about the love of God for His people. And because we have had no grasp of the majesty and transcendence and holiness and separateness of this God, news about the love of God is mere sentimentality. Oh, God loves you. And it rests on us like a Hallmark card. But my friends, John is saying from the very outset that if you're going to walk through this door of reality itself, you will be met with a brick wall of majesty. So awesome in its grandeur, it would drive you immediately to your knees. My friends, there needs to be a movement among your generation of recapturing in our worship and in our Christian experience the wonder and majesty and glory of a God who cannot be trifled with, who will not be simply ignored, who is not mocked, according to the Apostle Paul. Is there something of that in your own Christian experience? I believe that's what John wants you to look at. Your generation is concerned primarily with God's usefulness. I don't know, Wes. I tried the Christianity thing. I mean, I did youth group and stuff when I was in high school, but I don't know. I just I never saw it, saw its real importance. Never really did that much for me. The irony is that until we submit ourselves to have our knees bent before the majesty of God, He never becomes useful. To try to make Him useful is to render Him redundant. My friends, our culture has put the cart before the horse. It is His holiness that first comes to us in the book of Revelation before we ever get a sense. And if you don't get this point, the rest of the book will not make a lick of sense. It's absolutely fundamental. Okay, so final question we can ask. This is the beauty of the vision. What does John mean? What does he mean by these visions? Well, a couple of thoughts. First one is this one. Worship is at the center of the universe. I think that's exactly what he means. You see, the four living creatures come and sing holy, holy, holy all the time. And the 24 elders sing songs about the creative power of God. In other words, if you pull back the veil of reality, what you will find is people worshiping. And what I find so fascinating about this is that the way in which you apply this to your heart will only come home when you begin to realize that because reality is much closer than you think that it is, your tendency, that is your need to worship, is much closer than you think that it is. There are echoes, reverberations, as it were, in our world of needing to worship. You follow me on this? If reality itself is centered around worship, it means that we, even if you're the most disinterested religious person here tonight, we too are needful of worship. As a matter of fact, as Tim Keller says, worship, I believe, is the controlling mechanism of your heart. You want to understand yourself? You've got to look at yourself in terms of what you worship. What do I mean by that? Let me see if I can illustrate it. I wonder how many of you have ever known a sports fanatic... I'm talking about a nut, right? Uh, you know, this is the football fan who all week studies, studies carefully the object of their adoration. Uh, they read about it. They even witness about it to their friends. Did you see that game last week? 
are always talking about this thing. They spend a lot of time and a lot of money so that they can get tickets and, and, and take a car trip so that they can get in the presence of the object of their adoration. And when they finally get in the presence, what happens? Their whole posture changes, right? They begin to shout. They begin to praise and exalt the object of their adoration. <laughs> that, my friends, is what I'm calling worship. There'll be a service this coming Saturday at 11 o'clock. You can come and join it. You see how we worship these things. Have you not noticed the power that sexuality has over you? Have you noticed this? There's some of us that are more refined than others and don't really know how to talk about it. But there's some of you that are quite honestly outright addicted to it, to sexuality itself. But either way, we are unbelievably obsessed as a culture at the sight of a sexually attractive object. Most of us would never want anyone else to know just how much it moves you, just how much it consoles you when you're depressed or better yet, bored. When you get a chance to see and engage in a sexually attractive object, don't you see yourself doing that? Don't you find yourself gaining peace from sex? Don't you find yourself consoling yourself when you're down through sexuality? What is that? It's worship. It's worship. It's you gleaning joy off of that, those kinds of objects. How about another one? How about celebrities? You ever find this bizarre? You know, if you go to other countries, there's all kinds of stories about the royalty of those countries. And to be honest with you, when you look at the history of, uh, uh, of nations ruled by monarchs, it's typically a history of tyranny and, and oppression. But the truth is, in those countries that still have royalty, they are obsessed with their lives, right? They take pictures of them all the time. We want to look and follow where they go. And of course, we in our country look and go, ha, huh, how primitive, a king and a queen. But we have our own kings and queens, do we not? They come to us in the pages of the magazine right there in the lines at Walmart. We take pictures of them. We come, we have to know what they're doing. We exalt them. We pay exorbitant prices just to get pictures of them. What does the Bible say? Why does, why does that happen? Because the Bible says that every single one of you in this room was created to worship something. You are created to worship something that is greater than yourself. You have to. And the real reason that we're receiving these, that we do that, the real reason why we worship is that we're getting these echoes from reality itself. Therefore, we worship something. We bow down to bodies. We bow down to sex, football games, art, music. Go down the list. The best way for you to understand your behavior now, I know there's some people in this room that are thinking to themselves, yeah, 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 blah, blah, blah. You know, Les, to be honest with you, I've made it a point in my life to be above it all. I don't worship anything, Les. I'm one of those guys that tends to be produced in mass at Ole Miss who, quite frankly, just really don't care about anything. You cloak yourself in some form of science or philosophy or perhaps even just your own coolness enough to maintain a skeptic stance about it all. There is nothing that you see that cannot be seen through. But you know what the object of your worship is? Control. Control. Being able to look and say that I'm sort of above it all. That I sort of look around the things that I see and none of it moves me. Because I'm just that in control of myself. That's what it is even on a campus like this. 
But the truth is, for those people that deny themselves, this is fascinating to me. It was, it was temp- this is a sidebar. It was tempting for me to move a lot on this part of the sermon because there's so much of that that is so backwards. Because, my friends, the longer that we deny ourselves the need to be joyful about something, you dehumanize yourself. You follow me on that? To sort of walk around acting as if nothing really moves me and, oh, well, just sort of pass it all off with a simple ha. You deny yourself an absolutely fundamental aspect of your, of your constitution, your spiritual and your social constitution, to take joy in something. And you're dehumanizing yourself. And the truth of the matter is, when it's all said and done and all of the brouhaha goes away, you are a profoundly lonely person. And you're absolutely probably exhausted no matter how much rest you get. My friends, there is worship at the center of the universe. And when reality gets pulled back, there is a throne there. And so what this means is, is that the vision has some application for us. What does it mean? Two things. First thing, this. There's a clear implication that the citizens of the real world, what the Bible calls heaven, worship God by throwing down their crowns at His feet. What that means basically is, is that when you worship God, He demands anything and everything. John is basically saying that if you're going to have a relationship with this God, there is no aspect of your humanity that He has not looked and said, that's mine. His control will be total or it will not be at all. I love to hear people talk in certain phrases. They'll say, well, you know, I know Jesus as my Savior, but I really didn't make Him Lord of my life until such and such a time. My friends, bear with me, but no one makes Jesus Lord of anything. He is the Lord whether you acknowledge Him to be as much or not. The only question is, are you living in submission to His absolute authority? The way in which we do this is we throw our crowns, we take the things that are of the greatest value to us, and we say, this would be nothing if it weren't for you. You see, many of us are more than willing to confess to God the things that we think are our weaknesses. Oh, God, help me with this. Help me with that. But it's our crowns that get cast before God's feet. In other words, those are our strengths. The places which you look at and say, the things which even I thought were good about me are due only to the very grace of God in my life. That, my friends, is the beginning of a life lived in worship. Worship is nothing more than what you do when you find something to be altogether lovely. Worship as it comes to us. Unfortunately, most of us only think of worship in the context of a place like this. Tragic. And I know for a lot of you, when I start to speak in language like God owns your everything and anything, that you look and go, how incredibly oppressive. Here you are with the sort of overbearing Christianity that wants to rob me of my freedom. But please understand something. Something is getting your crown now. Oh, you're serving something tonight, I promise you, with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength. What is it? And my simple question to you from this passage is, is it worth it? Does it have the beauty that this has? Is it worth your service? Secondly, and finally, 
I think now we're ready to understand what Jesus says last week when he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Remember when he said that last week? Behold, I stand at the door and knock. This I've always thought and been taught that that is Jesus. Lightly rapping at the door of our hearts, hoping, wringing his hands, hoping that someone will just let him in. My friends, that's not what this passage is saying. This is not the door of our hearts as I was always told. This, my friends, is the door of reality itself. And it is an invitation to you to see the world as it really is. A world with God seated on the throne in absolute control and utter authority. That's what he means when he says, I'm standing at the door and knocking. And now it's actually helped me to really love that image. I used to hate it because it just sounded cheesy. But now I understand what it means. What is it that causes you, think about this, what is it that causes you to get up out of your seat and go answer the door when somebody's knocking? You ever thought about this? I'm actually inviting you to this almost every week. I've gotten to be this as a regular invitation that I give to you. What is it that causes you when somebody knocks on the door to pick up and actually go and answer the door? You know what it is? It's curiosity. Well, I wonder who's there. I wonder who's come to see me. I wonder what's on the other side of the door. Let me ask you a question. Do you think it's possible that the only way to explain that rather, a rather nagging sense of, of displacement that you've had since you've been here this semester is that the knocking is going on? See, because I believe that reality will be served. And the truthfulness of that reality is going to press itself in on your life, whether, my friends, you acknowledge it or not. We look so glibly at things like the Ten Commandments, like we studied last spring. And we think that we actually have a choice as to whether we're going to obey them or not. When the truth of reality is... The reality is pressing in. The truth of God's absolute authority is pressing in and it is creating dysfunction in your life. Those nights lying awake trying to figure out what's wrong and not even having the ability to sort of articulate what's wrong. The sense of displacement. Reality. Jesus is standing at the door and knocking, not weakly, not impotently, but with reality itself saying to you, you know this is true. And you know what's on the other side of reality. How much longer will you stay on the wrong side of the door? And are you not, as I've asked you a hundred times, are you not simply curious to find out what's on the other side? To, to jump into a small group, to, to, to commit to coming back on Wednesday night and saying, one more time, one more time. To maybe joining a fellowship group where you have a chance to talk about this with other people. To find a Sunday school class at church that you can dive into God's Word and just say, look, I don't know what it is, but I'm curious. Because I've heard the knocking. And I want to know what's there. Is there anybody like that in this crowd? 
pray. Lord Jesus, we ask that You would indeed be in this place. And when I say that, I don't mean to suggest that You weren't before we got here. Indeed, if heaven is anything, it is pressing in upon us with all sides. We have thought that we could optionally obey or disobey Your sovereignty. And when we look down at our hearts, it is all scarred up because we've been going against the grain of reality. Indeed, You have been knocking. And we are burdened because of it. So we ask, Father, that You would escort many tonight. That You would escort many tonight through the door and to a throne to the very throne of God, to a place of dignity, to a place of beauty, to a place of captivation, to a place of wonder, to a place that if we could see it without the clouded vision of our eyes tonight, it would make our present existence look like a mud puddle. And it's only by Your Holy Spirit that we'll be able to see and to taste that reality. We have one last song, Lord. Would You in these few last moments walk us in and let us see there what we perhaps have never seen before. And in so doing, we will lift our voices in praise to You that You might smile upon perhaps greeting us for the first time. Would you do that? We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.